Hello and welcome to today's Tech Lasso podcast. My name is Scott Moss. I'm an coordinator with ITO at the Los Angeles County Office of Education. I am very excited today to talk with Vicki Sedgwick. I've known Vicki for 10 years, although it seems longer. Vicki and I met at the, uh, I'm not saying that in a positive way, it just seems like we've been, you know, connected for a long time. Um, We met at the 2013 Q Rockstar Camp in Solana Beach, California. I think at that time we were the only two presenting on coding or computer science, and I think we instantly connected there at that event. Vicky has had and continues to have an immense impact on the field of elementary computer science education. She helped write the CSTA K-12 Computer Science Standards and the CSTA Standards for uh, CS, meaning Computer Science Teachers. She was also the lead for the AI for K-12 initiative, K-2 working group, and she's a contributing member of the AI for CA working group. Wow. Uh, Vicki has been had a passion for promoting computer science for years. From 2015 to just a few months ago, she led the hashtag CSK8 Twitter chat uh, to foster growth and among computer science educators for K-8 through teachers. So happy to have you, Vicki. Thank you for joining us. Um, nice to be here. Yeah, I'd love to still be hosting the chat, but Twitter kind of has changed, so we don't do the chat anymore there. We're trying new places, but we'll okay. see. If we... Let me know where where you take it to because uh... yeah, we'll see if we can find somewhere okay. else to land. So I understand. I completely understand. So <laughs> is that? I know your work as as working uh, promoting computer science with K two students, and I think if you tell somebody hey, we're going to do computer science or coding with K two students, they're going to say, "Well, they can't even read or they can't even type. How are we going to teach them computer science?" So, how do you address that when you hear that kind of thing? Well. They can't read either, right? But that doesn't mean that we don't give them books. It doesn't mean that we don't try and teach them to read. So to me, it's it's a foundational thing, just like reading and math and that. You don't wait to teach the teach those things until suddenly a kid knows how to read. You know, you you go through the basics, you lay foundations, you know, just like you start with letters and letter sounds, and then those make words, and we make sentences out of those. And that's how we learn to, you know, start to learn reading and how language works. Um, You can start those same things with coding. I'm not, you know, People think of coding and they think, oh, I'm sitting them down and they're writing, you know, a C++ program. (laughs) They're not, right? They're working with things that don't even have words on them. They're working with a block programming language that doesn't even have words on it. And it's it's pictorial, so they put pictures in order. Um, And it's great support, actually, for a lot of skills that they learn um, in other subject areas. Sequencing is a huge thing mm-hmm. in reading and in math, and sequencing is the foundation for coding um, for kids at that age, right? You got to put things in the right order or the program doesn't work. So um, it it's a great benefit to help them understand sequencing, what's first, what's next, what's last, which can also translate to other areas of the curriculum. And it lays those foundations for earlier. 
Um, and stereotypes set in so early. Hmm. If we don't start teaching these things really young, by the time they're, you know, a lot of people go, well, we can wait for middle school to do it, right? They, right. you know, they know how to type, they can, they can start programming then. But then the stereotypes are pretty entrenched <laughs> and they either are or are not someone interested in STEM fields and interested in coding, and they're not going to take it if it's offered as an elective. So if we just make it a routine part of their lives, then um, it's easier for them to go, oh, I do like this. I can do this, right? So I think it's important to lay those foundations in the primary grades, just like we lay the foundations for all subject areas. That's great. And I think you make a great point about students' identities. I've heard the term STEM identity used for, you know, when people think of programmers, you think of, you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and nerdy, nerdy white males, I guess <laughs> you might say, right? Uh, so I think it's important to kind of break down that stereotype and realize they say everyone can code, everyone can learn computer science. And not just so they can grow up to be programmers or computer scientists, but as you mentioned, there are many other benefits. And I see at the elementary level that it's probably not very likely that we're going to have, okay, we're going to have, you know, computer science time or coding time. I, I see it more integrated with other subjects. So uh, you mentioned a lot about sequencing and some of the benefits, but how do you see coding fitting into some of the core content for K2 students? There's a lot of ways you can do that. I, um, I actually did teach a separate area. Um, but I always tried to integrate it into things they were learning anyway, because I feel like that gives it a real world context, right? It's not this separate thing that they only do in my class. Um, so it can definitely be used to, um, to, to reinforce math concepts. Um, one of our favorite things to do is to draw with robots, right? And it, it was amazing after we did that, um, last year with our second graders. So our second graders, they learn how to make shapes with uh, Finch robots. And, you know, then they, we talk about an integration into art even and say, hey, you learned about Mondrian in art. So mm -hmm. can you recreate a Mondrian like thing with your robot? Or here's other geometric artists. Can you recreate something that inspires you by one of them with using the robot? Um, and so we integrated math because they're learning about shapes in math. And we're integrating computer science because they have to write code to get it to draw those shapes. And then we're integrating in the art as well. So that integrated a whole bunch of different subjects. And in fact, one of the second graders, as we were walking, as we were walking back to class, his uh, regular class said, we're, we learned all about shapes in math class and we did Mondrian, you know, we learned about Mondrian and art and now we got to put it all together with the you know, with the Finch robot. So, you know, it's exciting when the kids even see those connections, right? Um, and there's just so many areas. Robots are a great area because you can, anything you could do on a worksheet, you could put on a mat on the floor and program a robot to it. So don't have them like write things. I mean, that's important too. They have to learn those fine motor skills for sure in that at that right. age. But vary it, you know, the kids learn it. Um, you can integrate, you can have them learn to code things, and then they can use that 
knowledge to create coding programs that teach about a subject you know they if they learned about something in social studies for example they learned about you know their communities they could code could write a scratch junior program about somebody in their communities um so there's all kinds of ways to do it um it's just like if you're having them use any other tech tool you teach them how to use the tool that you want them to use like mm-hmm. scratch junior or robot and then they can use that tool to actually show their knowledge of other subject areas. So that's great. I think, yeah, there is a lot of transference. Once you learn it in one platform, you can apply it to other things. And the other thing I wanted to add on to is you talked about, well, you can do this instead of a worksheet. Well, which which is a student more likely to retain and recall something that's in context or a worksheet? I think they're it's much more memorable when they do that kind of work using robots or coding and something that they have hands-on, uh, more visceral experience. Right. And I also found a lot of times, like, if you gave them a worksheet on something, they'd rush through it to try and answer it. Whereas with a robot, they intentionally have to slow down because now they have to figure out what the answer is, right? So let's say you're just having them do one of the things we do with kindergartners, for example, is they roll dice Mm -hmm. and they add up the number of the dice and then they have to Mm -hmm. code the robot to the answer on a mat. Okay. Simple, simple. The math's simple. It's just got numbers on it. They roll the dice. You can add more dice for kids that can add more num- higher numbers and start with smaller, you know, a smaller amount of dice for the um, ones that are struggling. And they intentionally have to slow down because now not only do I have to get my answer, but now I have to program to it. So it's causing them, I think, to spend more time thinking about it than they might on a worksheet where they're just scrolling down an answer to finish the sheet to fill in the blanks. So, And aren't these activities typically less individual? They're working with a group or other people Correct. are seeing their work. And I think that also has makes a big difference because if you're doing a worksheet, you know, only the teacher's going to see it. And if it's <laughs> not great, then, you know, I'll be all right. But if my peers are seeing it, that's, that's a whole different ballgame, isn't right. it? Right. We yeah. always try especially with robots we always work in collaboration with at least one other partner and so you're not only teaching coding and maybe they're you know also doing it to reinforce concepts they learned in another subject area but now they're also having to learn collaboration with a peer and you know working together and all those soft skills that we want them to learn and they're just learning them naturally because they have to work together. Earlier you mentioned doing this kind of work in context and I know you were part of the AI for K-12, the big five ideas for AI. And at the center of that, if you go to that and you see the diagram, you see at the center of that is societal impact. And if you were to say, oh, I'm going to teach the societal impact of AI or computer science to K2, many people would be really surprised that that you could do that. So could you talk a little bit about how you might address that? The first thing you need to think about when you're thinking about societal impact is where is AI impacting us, right? And that's a great place to start with the primary grades it's impacting them daily they may not even realize it but um they they interact with things all the time i mean the kids are almost all of them are on some kind of streaming service right Right. and they're getting recommendations of what to watch next Mm -hmm. all of those things are ai and the impact that ai is having on you 
their parents, they may have a, a, you know, an Alexa, sorry, if somebody's went off or, or something <laughs> at home that they, that they just converse with, or they use their parents' phone to ask it questions, right? right. Um, they're interacting with that all the time. They are at school too, and they may not realize it. Like my kids, like you said, Scott, they can't, they can't, you know, spell yet. They can't read yet. They can't do whatever, but they want, for example, their, um, they want a speech bubble in Scratch Junior. So my students used iPads. They would use um, speech to text all the time to create mm. their speech bubbles because it just was easier for them than to try and figure out how to spell the words or to spell them wrong. They were always like, tell me how to spell it. And it's like, well, why don't you try? <laughs> you know, so they're using that all the time and we're not pointing out that that's AI. So we can take those opportunities to talk about that's AI. And is is that good that it does that? Is it bad? Um, you're not going to get into in in K to 2 you're not going to get into the heavy duty you know all the bias things you might get right. into especially upper elementary middle school mm-hmm. you can have some amazing conversations with those kids about mm-hmm. those the biases that are affecting their lives that are affecting their parents lives that are affecting jobs that are affecting the economy all of that but you can start those conversations in K to 2 with where is it happening? And mm. really the question I always ask them is, where's AI hiding, right? Because oh, AI isn't, great. it isn't saying I'm here, right? right? It's hidden into all those things we're already we're, we're already using. So where is it? Oh, have you seen your parents use maps? You know, are they, are you, they using uh, Google maps? Oh, that's got AI built in. Um, is, is that helpful to them? You know, so the idea is to talk, where is it helpful? Where is it maybe not helpful? You know, um, I've had interesting discussions with um, younger kids about the personal assistance. Like, but yeah, it's always, it's always listening. You know, is that a good thing or a yeah. bad thing, right? And even in primary grades, they they have opinions on that, <laughs> you know. Oh, really? Have, oh, yeah. And um, you're not going to get, like I said, super, super deep, but they have right. opinions on how how it's being used in their lives and where it's appearing. Right. So you can start to have those discussions. So you're having bias discussions without necessarily defining right. the word bias, right? You're you're talking about about that thing um and there's things you can teach them about bias as you're doing stuff without using technical right heavy terms you're just laying again laying that foundation for them to have those those it's they need to start thinking about how it's affecting them right Right. oh did you ever get a recommendation, you know, on Netflix or on what? Because they're all on some kind of streaming service. Right. You kids on whatever that you thought, why is it recommending that to me? You know, right. so talk about why are you seeing the recommendations you're seeing? There's a lot of those conversations you can start having even in K to 2. Right. Do do any of the young kids have, you know, privacy concerns? Do they express that as far as being listened to all the time? Sometimes it comes up when they're talking about the the personal assistant devices. It's right. like, right. you know, and it, it's interesting to hear it come out of their mouths, you know, right. Um, right. because you wouldn't think they'd be thinking about that. Um, but some of them are. 
especially by sec by second grade they're you know they've noticed it happening and they're like oh, i don't know if that's good um, most of them think it's fine because right. then it can help them all the time right, right. Um, so but the idea is to but as a teacher you can kind of lead them in the other well could there be a time when it wouldn't be good you know and a lot of them can come up with those you sometimes have to lead into that if you want to get to that point because they all think it's great because i can ask it any question at any time and it can give me an answer <laughs> right. i i think this also emphasizes the importance of putting things in realistic context back in uh, earlier this year when i was in school I, I did a case study with third and fourth graders and there was one activity where the teacher just asked them to talk about how is your netflix feed different than your parents or somebody else's and they were so excited to talk about it and really provoked some of the, the best conversations in in those series of lessons because I think, especially maybe not so much at K2, hopefully, but at the older grades, kids tend to be disconnected from the content at times. But by placing this kind of work in a context of their lives, YouTube and Netflix and personal assistance, I think it really uh, engages them and, and it's relevant. It's, and you can connect, as you mentioned, you can connect to the math standards and language arts standards and whatnot. So I think that's, I think that's huge to put things in context like that. Yeah, it is. And and even in K to two, you can sometimes get some, you know, disengagement with some things. Not as much because it's all hand. Yeah. I I love K to two and teaching it because it's so it's so hands on and it's so much more so than a lot of the others. So, but yeah, they like to have those discussions too. They're using those things at home, and people don't talk about them at school. You know, it's not something you talk about at school. So it's fun to talk about what was your recommendation look like, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So. And yeah, why am I getting this exactly? When I do presentations, I often kind of clarify for the audience about d different ways to categorize AI and uh, curation versus creation. So we've been talking uh, to this point about curation AI, things like Netflix recommendations and so on, but certainly in the last a little over a year now, creation AI has been uh, the big the big news, and everyone's very focused on that. Uh, things such as ChatGPT and Bard and whatnot. And I see in your work you are supporting, you know, teaching again K through two kids about generative AI and how that works. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, we're not. Just to clarify, I'm not saying let's go on ChatGPT and have a K to two student use it. They Thank can't. You. Okay. There's an age limit there, and you you need to you need to apply it. You need to obey it. Um, and you don't know what's going to happen. And and at a K to two, they're not. They don't have the skills enough reading and otherwise to evaluate whether it's true or not true. So, but I can, just like I lay foundations for other things, I can lay foundations for how it works, okay? What's it doing? And I think a lot of people don't know what it's doing. A lot of adults don't know what it's doing, but you can start having those discussions with K to two. Um, you can take book as simple as uh, Green Eggs and Ham, which is a very repetitive book, right? If you think about Green Eggs and Ham, it's like, I do not like them, Sam, I am. I do not like Green Eggs and Ham or, oh, I would not eat them here or there, right? So it's got repetitive styles of sentences and you can take those and print them on paper, turn them into like sentence strips that um, will take the subject 
and like the would not like part and the, you know, and, and break them into pieces, which is similar to how a large, large language model works. It actually breaks a word into pieces. A lot of times it'll take the plural off of a word. We're breaking it into bigger chunks, okay. right? And then build an actual physical model using sentence strips and like containers of some kind that are labeled, you know, box one, two, three, four, five, and build a model of a language model. Um, totally unplugged. They're not using a computer in any way. They're just taking these sentences with very simple words, because we all know green eggs and ham doesn't have very many words on it. Um, and you can help them read it, you know, and then you can put it in this, uh, in all the boxes. And then you have them actually take this, take one thing out of each box and make their own sentences, just like a large language model would, based on the training data. And our training data in this case was from green eggs and ham. The training data, of course, of a large language model is from, you know, everything on the internet before a certain date, but, right. and now including searching the internet, but you can put it down to that small level. And it actually works great even into upper elementary to do the same book, right? And then they also create their own sentences in that same style. They'll fill in one of the blanks so that it isn't just green eggs and hams things, but it's things modeled on that sentence structure. And then so that anything they pull out should make sense. So that's the first thing they do when they pull it out, they go, does that sentence make sense? Because it doesn't always make sense in a large language model, as we know. The sentence makes sense, Mm-hmm. But the context doesn't always make sense. Right. Um, yes, that's a sentence. It starts with a capital letter. It ends with a period. But does it, you know, so that's the first thing they do. But then they generate these sentences from that. So that can work with a large language model. You can also, as a class, have kids suggest Things for a story, for example, who's the main character in the story? Who's another character? Um, what are they doing? Where's the scene? What time of day? And actually, as a teacher, generate that story. And again, now we're going to get more into is it doing a good job? So you generate a story in Chat GPT or whatever, and then you have the kids look at that story and decide if it's a good story. That's great. Yeah, you and can... improve that story because it isn't always what you'd want it to be. How would you improve it? You know, so now you can have them working with it, but they're not touching the large language model. And I like to do the how it works. And then it can be fun to go into the let's write a story with a real one now, right? Um, as a class. And then you can give them, you know, have them improve that story, which I think is fun. And art's a whole nother thing, right? Because okay. <laughs> we've got the we've got the art side of it. And there are some tools today that maybe you could use um, if your if your school's using them. Like Padlet has a way of doing it without signing in. And Canva, if you've got right. a Canva account, has it. But I tend to with art. I tend to use a non-generative one. I tend to use uh, AutoDraw because I can then show how 
kind of how it's trained because you can show them quick draw right. and it, cause it's using the data set from quick draw. So you can actually play quick I, draw sh and then show them the data and right. say, Hey, this data is now used right. so you can make drawings you know, and it'll, so I'm not using it as a, I mean, it's touted as a something of, you can't draw, so let's make a flyer, for example. Right, right. I use it with kids. Again, they've written that story, for example, maybe with a large language model. Now let's illustrate it, a oh, scene from it great. using auto draw, right? So now you're talking about, you can train how a data set is trained with all these drawings people have made of all these different words. And now if you try and draw one of those, it's going to suggest at the top what it thinks you're drawing the same way that quick draw does right. only there's not a 20 second time limit. My kids love quick draw and they always want to try it. But I warn you, if you're doing it with K to two, you can end up with tears because it's only oh, it's no. only 20 seconds. It That's only gives right. you 20 seconds to draw it. And they don't read a lot of time. So they don't see the word. Right. They have to wait for it to tell you the word. Um, then it's wasted some of the time. Yeah. By the time they start drawing, it's, it's moved on to the next word. Yeah. So it's a little frustrating for them. So I tend to demo quick draw. Right. And then let them use auto draw. Great. And then they can put their own things in the picture and use the the auto draw, you know, magical feature to to create some images based on things they're drawing. So I tend to do that rather than going into Canva and having them actually try it. Mm -hmm. Um because one, well, Canva's a paid thing. Adobe Firefly would be a paid thing that I know people that are using them with younger kids. But again, there's language involved because you do have to tell it what to draw. Um, and so for really young kids, they're not going to be able to type it in. They may be able to do uh, speech to text to get their prompt in. But again, I worry about the language models that these things are using and if what my kids are doing is training more models there's so much going on and if you go sometimes go to okay what language model is you know i, I can't even remember what canva is using for example right. well let's i think canva may be using open ai well open ai says it's taking your data and training stuff sure. a lot of and Canvas says it's not, but, and maybe in this instance, because they're probably paying for it, it's not, but I don't know that because OpenAI says it is, and it says they're using OpenAI. And so I have privacy concerns of letting the kids use it, even if I have those tools. So you just got to, you know, be aware that those things are there. And I find with K-2, to if I start with those basics of Everything's trained on data, even the, you know, generative AI stuff, generative AI art. So talk about data training, talk about the fact they need a lot of images. And you can illustrate all of that with quick draw and auto draw. And it's a simpler way with kids. And if you're using book creator, it's awesome because you could hmm. paste paste in, for example, the story you created in the large language model mm -hmm. into a collaborative book. 
have each sentence be a separate page in the book and each student gets a page or each student, each pair of students gets a page and then they can create and AutoDraw is built right into Book Creator. So they can then use the AutoDraw feature in Book Creator to illustrate their sentence. So then you've got a collaborative book created by the class and AI. So. Wow. You're, you're giving us gold here. This is absolutely great. And one of the things I want to comment on is you said, well, the students are not evaluating AI outputs, but it sounds like they are because if they're looking at a story and they're refining it, and and I think even for us, when we use ChatGPT or whatever, when we get the output, it's like, oh, we assumed certain context in our heads, but we didn't write that down. And that's probably what happens a lot with, with these kids if they're doing a story or I forgot to talk about the yeah. setting or something <laughs> like that. Uh, so I see that as the, being yes, extraordinarily they're... valuable. They're evaluating it for good, but we all know AI hallucinates. And right. at K-2, they wouldn't be good at getting to the hallucination bit. Um, right. But yeah, they are evaluating the story because I think that's the important part is, great, it created this story, but is it a good story? Are there things you could do to make it better, right? And instead of iterating with AI at that point, you can then have them iterate on the AI story. So now they're co-creators with AI in a different way than just iterating. So they're learning about the writing process. They're learning about, you know, AI. And it's just, it's just outstanding stuff. Wow. I know that you've spent a lot of time uh, training teachers. And that's kind of your focus now with all your work. You know, I'm sure a lot of teachers, especially K2 teachers, I assume many of them have little to no experience in computer science. And they might be nervous about doing this kind of thing. How do you, can you talk about how you support K through two teachers in, in these efforts? Yeah, it's hard and it's intimidating. You hear the word computer science and they're intimidated, right? They hear coding and they're intimidated because as adults, we have a bigger awareness of what those things are. And we think that's what you want my five-year-old to do. Right. C plus and that's plus, not yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. So I think part of it is showing them how they can fit how they can fit it into their day, showing them that it can help support those other subjects and help make some things like a math worksheet more enjoyable because I'm now doing it with a robot, right? So now I'm still doing those math problems I wanted them to do on the worksheet, but now I've thrown in some something that makes it more engaging and more collaborative with the kids, right? So I'm hitting things that I wouldn't necessarily hit with a worksheet, right? but I'm still hitting those, you know, I've got to solve these math problems, you know, uh, type of thing. Um, so I think it's showing them a little bit at a time how you can fit it in. Um, and helping them to learn the tools they need to learn so that they're not intimidated by them, right? Teach them how to learn Scratch Junior, for example. Right. Um, and they can get to where, oh, that's not that hard, right? But if you haven't ever tried it yeah. and you're just intimidated by it, it it sounds like, how could I possibly do that with K-2 right. students, right? Okay. And it's about time and it's about being realistic with them with the time too. Because part of what I've heard a lot of times with people talking integration is how easy it is. And ultimately, I think it 
can be, but there's some training involved, right? Just like if you want your kids to make a movie, for example, or stop motion animation, for example, you have to teach them how to do that, right? You have to teach them how the software works. You have to take that same step with Scratch Jr., for example, I can't, you know, it's very intuitive, but if I'm going to want them to do a specific thing, like let's say I'm going to want them to do a coding program that shows the life cycle of a butterfly. I am going to need to teach them how to use Scratch Jr., the things within Scratch Jr. to be able to put that together, right? Right. Uh, Otherwise, you know, they're not going to know how to do it. It's very intuitive. They'll play with it and they can get somewhere. But if really what I want them to do is that one, is that project, I have to teach them. Okay, I'm going to have to teach them how to use the drawing portion of it because there aren't figures of all of the phases of life cycle of a butterfly. So they're going to have to draw that or take pictures of it and cut them out, you know, within that. I'm going to have to teach them how to, you know, sequence the code in some way so it'll do that. So the idea is if the teacher kind of learns it and they know how it works, then they can teach the parts of it that they want them to learn and have them play with it. And I say the biggest thing to do with all of those tools, give them time to play with it without a, like the first thing I do with the kids is what can you make it do? Right. Right. I teach them here's where the code is and here's how you put the blocks together. Now we're going to use the move blocks in this and what can you make it do? How can you make it move? Give them that time to experiment and play because they're going to do it anyway before you expect an academic thing out of it. So even if it's a, oh, we have some free time Friday, make the free time Friday a play with Scratch Junior time. (laughs) Right. Wonderful. (laughs) That's so great. And you mentioned teachers, you know, kind of learning it. And one of the things, even with Scratch Junior, teachers still may not feel confident. They may learn some of it and they may not feel like they've mastered it. And typically teachers like to be masters of their content. Is there anything that you do to kind of support teachers when they say, yeah, well, what if I don't know the answer to something? What if a kid wants to do something and I don't know how? How do you address that? One of my biggest things is telling teachers it's it's about mindset, your mindset too. Mm-hmm. Every, we all love as teachers to tell kids they should be lifelong learners. This is our chance to exhibit that we're lifelong learners. I don't know, let's figure it out, is the best answer in my opinion. Even if I do know, a lot of times that's oh. the best answer because I want the kid to learn it. I don't want to tell them every time how right. to do it. I want to feed right? it to them, right? So even if I do know it, even if I am the master of it, I don't know. Let's figure it out. And just asking the right questions is the best thing to do. And sometimes, yeah, you'll have to say, I don't know. Let me see if I can. we can figure that out. Or let me check something tonight and I'll get oh, back to you good. tomorrow on that, right? Um, there's... I would highly, highly, highly recommend you um, get involved somehow with other people who are trying to teach CS, right? So if you're a member of Q, 
join the computer science learning network there and ask questions on there. They have a, a message board, ask questions there, right? Um, I highly recommend joining a CSTA in your local CSTA chapter, right? And they all have communities, um, message board communities um, on the CSTA website. Ask a question there. If you're on social media, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Blue Sky, if you're on Mastodon, you know, follow people that also do that, that also teach CS in some way, and ask the question there, right? right. Find, even if you find that one person, you can ask a question, you know, ask a question. Like I always tell people when I do the training, it's like, you've, if you've got a question, ask me, you know, because it may be something that I just did. I just know so well, I forgot to tell you. Right? Right, right. And, and that doesn't mean that, you know, it's a bad question. It just means, oops, I forgot to tell you. <laughs> I forgot to tell you that piece. So mm -hmm. ask a question. Um, when I do training, that's what I always say, people, it's like, here's my contact information, and please use it if you have if you right. have a question, because you're not going to get it all the first time. You're not going to learn it all immediately. But the more you do it and the more you try it with your kids and the more you say, we can learn it together, the better it is for you and for them. They see you modeling that life, lifelong learning. They see you modeling, maybe not knowing everything, right? Um, and I find it makes you more empathetic to the kids too, if you're starting from scratch, because you're understanding what they're going through trying to learn it. Because um, sometimes being the master of some craft, you've lost that. You're out of touch with that. You know, you're out of touch with uh, someone struggling with it. That's a great point. And, and from the teacher's point of view, I think that's much more fun to say, hey, let's learn this together than... <laughs> Hey, here's the answer. You know, here yep. here's the answer. It's not that much fun. We're very used to doing that. That's kind of our paradigm many times. But my last job before LACO was teaching junior high. And even at that level, they're saying, well, you're the teacher. You're supposed to know everything. Well, I don't. And again, let's learn this together, as you said, is really uh great for the kids and it's great i think it's great for the teachers as well uh, to me it was the most fun i had as a teacher in a, in a very long right. career and it can be really helpful to have kids pair program um have kids hmm. work together on it even if you have one-to-one -one devices whatever it can be good to intentionally pair kids whether they're working on one project together on one device or they just are a pair together to just shoot ideas off of one another because a lot of times they can figure it out together they're just for some reason stuck on their own right, right? or somebody else you may also end up with class experts it's like oh i don't know how to do that but johnny just did why don't you go ask him right. how he did it right encourage those conversations um, between the students yeah, and I don't know if this is true at K2 as much, but I know, again, in junior high, those go-to kids were often kids who were not successful in other areas of school, and someone would come up to them, hey, because they know what they asked me, that I would not give them the answer. I said, read the code to me and all that. So they yeah. like, I want to get the answer. So they go to a kid, but that kid would 
kind of has this look of you're asking me a question at school about school stuff. That's never happened before. And that is extremely powerful and, and transformative for those kids to know that uh, how much they have to offer and, uh, you know, and make school more, more interesting to them. So that's, that's a great, great point. Yeah. It's, it's awesome to see that. I love when I see that, that kid who hasn't been successful somewhere else, suddenly they get this, they yeah. just do, you know? And it's so empowering too, because kids say, can I make a program about, yes, the yeah. answer is yes, you can do it. Even yeah. if you can't do it, even if they don't have the skills just or try you know, it. scratch, yeah. or they get, you know, some of them just love to recreate, you know, Mario, yeah. whatever, and, and, and recreate their favorite video game. But just knowing that it's possible that if I learn this, I can make whatever I want. I think that's really powerful because at school, you don't usually get that opportunity to kind of say, I, you know, I can do what I want and I can have my voice heard and put my spin on things. And when I taught middle school with you, I'm going to teach you the digestive system. And you know how that little animation yeah. is going to end up, you know, and they bring their, their kind of uh, their potty humor or whatever. <laughs> so it's, so it's really great. But in the, in that they, they really uh, pick up a lot of uh, valuable skills that I think mm -hmm. are transferable, generalizable and, and all that. I cannot believe how the time has flown. Let me let me ask one last question, and then we'll, we'll finish up. Could you share any you know success stories that you've seen with students uh, doing computer science? Oh wow, um, there's a lot of them, but it's like I know. in K to two, I don't see you know. It's like they're not they're not creating the next best app or anything, right? Um, but I've taught K to eight through years and for me the ultimate success especially in the younger grades is that kid that you see struggle and struggle and struggle like we use some sometimes we'll use apps that are the coding puzzles right, right. to start teaching concepts and then we'll go into scratch junior after that to reinforce that by creating your own programs but so they they may be in something like codable for example mm -hmm. learning how to you know <laughs> to do a loop. And I have seen kids, and it's interesting as a teacher behind, I could see how many attempts they would make at a puzzle. And there were kids that would make 20, 30 attempts to solve a puzzle. And that joy when they solved it, to me, is the ultimate success. And then to be able to see them figure that out and then understand and go on and solve the rest of them easily and transfer it into Scratch Junior and use it there to create their own projects. To me, that's the ultimate success. It's like they did really learn it, right? It wasn't just, oh, a fun puzzle I solved. And then to see the kids that I taught through middle school go on into high school and continue learning, you know, being excited to be able to take the AP courses and whatever wow. in high school is, is ultimately great. It's like, because as you know, in middle school, Scott, mm -hmm. they often get turned off to things, you know, their right. peer pressure is huge in middle school. And if your friends aren't into the techie stuff or into the, oh, that's just for geeks, you know, right. stuff, they can get turned off. So to see them continue to be excited by it and want to continue learning about it, to me, is the ultimate success story. And I have a few kids that are 
planning on uh, that are in college study that I taught that are in wow, college. That's so exciting. So, you know, I don't know what they're going to do with it. But it's right. exciting to hear about it, you know. <laughs> That is wonderful. Well, I feel like you and I could talk for hours, but we do uh, we do have to wrap this up. By the way, the links that Vicky mentioned are in the show notes, so uh, you can see those there. And I just want to thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your, there's a whole lot of pearls of wisdom and a lot of very great concrete ideas here for teaching computer science and AI, especially to the young ones. But I think a lot of these can be applied to the older kids as well. So absolutely, just want to thank you for your time, Vicki. Thank you. Great talking to you. The ITIL coordinators thank you for listening to this episode of Tech Lasso. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. Also, follow us on social media. The links are in the show notes. Thank you again, and let us know how we are doing. Go to bit.ly slash techlasso.